The sermon reading for today comes from Matthew 5, 1 through 8. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Let us pray. Dear God, I praise you and thank you for this day. I thank you for this church and, and the community here, Lord. I pray that you will be with all of us throughout the this week, Lord, and I pray that today that you will open our hearts and minds to to the sermon that um, Alan will bring. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. By the way, if anyone's ever wondering why I keep my phone on up here, and I have to tell everybody who's online, if anyone is online and watching, I, I glance at this from time to time, so if you have any questions, you can ask them, or you can even ask questions from down there. Um, if I can read them well enough. Hi. They're saying hi, so I'm hang, saying hi back. So that's what's going on with keeping that on. So we are um, continuing our series through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus' probably most famous words uh, that he spoke in Scripture. And, and today we get to this beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And it's probably not one that we enjoy hearing as much. But before we even get into dealing with um, what this parable is all about. I really want to ask the question, why in the world is this statement here in the middle of the Beatitudes? Because, you know, in many ways, it, it, it seems like this one ought to come first uh, because of how central it is, because of how, how core it is that only the pure in heart can see God. But let me try to set these Beatitudes in a context for us this morning, maybe even a structure that'll help us to hang on to them a bit better and understand what Jesus uh, is saying here. Because one of the things we've already noted as we've been working through this series is that the first uh, three of these Beatitudes deal with um, our, our own personal need, our, our conscious need before God. First of all, that we are absolutely poor in spirit, right? which means that we have more than problems and more than struggles, but it means that we have no righteousness of our own to offer to God. There's nothing in us that can even cooperate with God. Secondly, he goes on to say, if we believe that, then we will mourn over our sin rather than trying to justify our sin or defend our sin or even to try to work it off. We are simply grieved over it because of how ugly it is, because how it separates us from God. And then thirdly, we see that um, it produces people who are meek. In other words, as I stand before God with total need and no ability to meet that need on my own, and yet I see Jesus gladly meeting that need for me, it creates a heart of meekness toward those around us. We have a patience, a, a kindness, um, a gentleness, rather than being boastful and competitive and trying to win. And then the next beatitude shows us how that need is met. See, we, we all have a longing for rightness, I guess a good way to put it. We, we want to be validated. We want to feel like we're okay. We want people to look at us and say, you know, you're good. You're great. You're special. You're somebody. 
Uh, we long to be able to hear that. And we're told by Jesus that that longing is filled in Jesus because he fills us with what we desperately long for. And then the next three Beatitudes are really the results of the satisfaction that we have in Christ. We become people who are merciful, right, instead of competitive. We are pure in heart rather than, you know, being pure when people are looking and caught up in sin when they're not. Uh, we are peacemakers uh, as we relate to the brokenness of the dying world. And then, of course, we get to see the outcome of all this, which we all can't wait to get to, that we are persecuted for it. <laughs> yeah, no one's going to show up that Sunday. Um, but, but there's actually even more going on here th than just that, because um, it, it appears to me that in the opening three Beatitudes that deal with our need, they all three have a corresponding Beatitude in the end that meets that need. And so, for example, it's those who see their poverty of spirit that become merciful people. See, any, anybody can do acts of mercy, but those whose hearts have been given the righteousness of Jesus when they had none themselves, they naturally become merciful and patient with others. In other words, being merciful isn't something that we do, it's something that we become, that we are as a result of God's grace. And then we notice that those who mourn over their sin, that they grieve over the fact that sin even exists, that uh, of how addicted we are to our sins, and I can't seem to be able to stop it. Those are the people who have a deep desire to see all of that impurity burned away and to live in holiness. In other words, when we grieve over our sins, there's a provision for that, right? There's a satisfaction for that. There is a purity and a holiness available. And so the pure in heart are those who mourn over their sin. And then you have that, the third triad, and that is that those who are meek in their relationships and their dealings with other people are peacemakers, right? Rather than arguers always trying to win or trying to prove themselves, they have a heart that longs to bring peace. And see, what we have here are three um, steps of need, if you will, followed by a provision for that need and then three results that flow from it. Now, the reason I mention all that is I want you to see just how tied this particular beatitude is this morning to grieving over our sin, to mourning over it. And that purity of heart is the solution to that deep grief. It's a way out. Because, listen, this is what I'm trying to deal with. For far too many of us, the, the grief over their sin keeps them locked up in a prison of shame and despair. And we're all grieving over our sin. We all grieve over our brokenness. But does it leave you locked in a prison of despair and shame? And Jesus says, look, I've made a provision for that mourning over your sin. And that provision is Jesus and the purity of heart that comes. Now, so let's, let's get into this. Let's, in fact, let's just take each word apart separately uh, and, and move through this passage. First of all, blessed are the pure in heart. Let's look at the word heart. And, and I think just like all the other Beatitudes that we've been looking at up to this point, Jesus' emphasis here is on, on the heart rather than our external behavior, right? Who you are as a person rather than what things that you do. Because, you know, again, anybody can mimic good behavior. We all know how to look good, right? Who, me, right? We, we can look very innocent, and like, I didn't do that, right? We can pretend that, we can put that on. But Jesus, see here, he's talking about purity of heart, purity from the inside out. 
This is what Paul talks about when he says circumcision of the heart. Because again, remember, you know, Jesus isn't just giving us this sermon in a vacuum. He's doing it in the context of um, the religious community of his day. And he's contrasting the kingdom that he is bringing with the kingdom that has been established by the Jewish religion, where people were desperately consumed with how you looked on the outside, right? How you appeared to people, basically dealing with your reputation. You know, and, and that's why Jesus was so critical of them. All sorts of examples. Let me just give you one in Matthew 23. He's talking to the religious leaders here, and he says, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Because you see, very much like the typical religion of our community today, the most important thing for them was how they looked, their, their reputation with other people. And so it was all about externals, it was all about show, and, and he said they actually forgot the weightier matters of the law. You know, like actually loving people, right? And so Jesus says here that my kingdom is, is totally different than what you're used to. It's an inside-out kingdom of the heart. It doesn't start with better behavior, but it begins with a completely new heart that leads to new behavior. And, and see, let, I mean, I want, let's just think here for a moment about maybe some of the ways that we can contrast this with the, the ways that we most often uh, miss. And what, what, I, what I mean by we is the conservative evangelical church in the Bible Belt. How do we often miss this? Because, you see, I, I think for some churches, um, for some religious communities, the way they function practically would, would best be described by saying, uh, let's put the parable this way, blessed are the pure in theology, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in doctrine, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure who've got it all together in their head. They're the ones who are going to see God. But listen, if the Pharisees teach us anything here, it's that you can know an awful lot about God and still not know him. And you can actually use his laws as creative ways of trying to save yourself. And there's an awful lot of people today who are faithful in church attendance, who know their Bibles well, who never miss BSF. They can dissect any passage of scripture. They can outline any book of the Bible, but they lack the poverty of spirit that leads them to mourn over their sin rather than trying to cover it up with lots of head knowledge and doctrine knowledge and knowledge about God. Or here's an even more subtle version of this is when you convince your heart that your, your inconsistent life and all the ways that you're just blowing it spiritually, it's really caused because you just don't know enough about the Bible. And if you only could get into more studies or have more classes or read the right book, or if there's just some secret doctrine that you could find that's gonna unlock a more consistent life for you, then you'd be able to live a better life like other people seem to be able to. And of course, that's a lie because you can never know enough to see God, you have to be pure in heart to see God. And therefore, the only solution is to grieve over that sin and then long for the <coughs> purity of heart that makes you right with God. Now, a second way that we often go off the rails with this are those who, uh, in practice, would maybe define the parable this way, the beatitude this way. Blessed are the pure in spiritual passion, for they will see God. 
And see, for many people, they err on the side of looking at their feelings toward God, their emotions, their responses to God, what they feel in their heart. And it's easy for them to believe that in order to have a, a changed heart, since I can't do that on my own, I agree with that, what I need is the emotional experience of a really rock and worship service or the, the emotional response to a, a really convicting sermon. And without that, my spiritual life is just flat. It's kind of stagnant. But listen, you can have a lot of passionate feelings about God without having a deep conviction of sin and a longing for purity. It, it's frankly easy to become addicted to the experiences of God's presence rather than the heart transformation that Jesus is talking about here. Because you see in the Bible, when it's talking about the heart, it means the center of who you are as a person. And that includes your mind, it includes your will, it includes your emotions. And see, Jesus here is talking about a heart that at its deepest roots and longings wants nothing more than to see holiness and purity, rather than the many excuses that we often put up with for our bad behavior, rather than all these promises that we often make that I'm really going to change this time, they just never seem to get us anywhere. Rather than even comparing ourselves to other people so we don't feel quite so bad about the problems that we have, at least I'm not as bad as they are. See, what Jesus says is we come to hate our sin. We hate what it does to us. We hate what it does to others. We hate how it separates us from God's presence. Right? And, and, and we hate it not just because it makes us look bad, but because it separates us from God, we want to see him. We want his presence. We know that's what we were made for. Nothing else satisfies. But then secondly, the heart isn't just the core of who we are as a person. It's also really the source of everything that's wrong with us. As Jesus puts it in Matthew 15, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. And, and see, this is... Another thing that's important to know, because the culture that we live in tends to think that the main problems that we have as people, they come from our circumstances. And so what we need is more education, or we need more equal opportunities for people, or we need more government programs that will fix and address all the problems out there. And because we also live in that culture, it's easy for us to believe that too. And we begin to think, but what I really need is a new house or a new truck or a new boyfriend or a new job or whatever. You know, then life would be perfect. And we're always looking for the perfect circumstances that are going to make us feel whole on the inside. But I think the Garden of Eden just blows this whole theory away because Adam and Eve lived in a perfect world with perfect circumstances, with perfect relationships, and they still fell apart. And I think even in the church, we, we often don't get it any better because so often what we hear in the church's teaching is that our main problem is you just don't have enough commitment. And if you would just stop messing around and if you would just get more serious about God, if you would make a deeper commitment to obey and follow after him, then your life would be better and things would come together. But listen, Adam and Eve couldn't have been more serious. They couldn't have been more intentional about their relationship with God and still they fell apart. Listen, Jesus is telling us here that at the seat of all of our problems, it comes from having a corrupt heart. And see, we, we, just, we can't stop messing around. We can't get serious enough 
to avoid sin. That's why we grieve over our sin rather than trying to justify it or excuse it or work it off. As the prophet Jeremiah reminds us, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure, right? You just can't fix the thing no matter what you do. It's not possible. Because listen, you can provide the best education in the world. You can provide the most equitable access to opportunity. You can sit under the most biblical teaching. You can have a government with all the best policies. You can have a culture with all the best morals guiding people's choices and still never address the heart. And that's what the world does. And all too often, that's what the church settles for. Far too often, even in the church, we're content to settle for trying to win from the outside in, right? We do it with legalism, right? Trying to coerce better behavior through guilt and shame or maybe through offering better models. Follow, be like Moses, be like Daniel, be like David, right? Or the church often does it with their politics, believing that if we just had the right laws and the right politicians in place, then we could curb all the bad behavior of the world. And personally, we do it with the ways that we beat ourselves up over our failures, even trying to dig ourselves out of the messy pits that we've dug for ourselves in hopes of making ourselves just a bit more worthy of asking for forgiveness rather than just running in repentance to Jesus and to believe that when we do, that our debt has been paid in full. To believe that right now we are holy and righteous in God's eyes because of what Jesus has done for us. And so we need to hear what Jesus says that the problem that we have is with our hearts. And we need new hearts. We need an outside in, uh, I mean, sorry, an inside out transformation that comes only through the Holy Spirit. And again, that's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. Jesus says, Here's my new kingdom. And it, it, it's blossoming from new hearts. And so the call here isn't to be more meek and to have more poverty of spirit and to learn to mourn over your sins. That, I mean, that would mean that Christians can go home and work on these things. But Jesus' whole point here is that citizens of my kingdom have already been transformed from the inside out. And this is how they act. This is who they are. And this is not how I will accept them and love them if they can become this. They, they already are. So that's why Jesus' emphasis here is on the heart. Now, secondly, let's look at the word purity. Blessed are the pure in heart. What does he mean by purity? And, and, and I think it's especially important for us to deal with because, listen, if, if you were to talk to the average American, and I've seen so many uh, polls on this, that most Americans believe deep down that those who try their best will see God. Just, just do the best you can try as hard as you possibly can, it'll be enough. But Jesus says only the pure in heart will see God, not those who try hard. Now the word for purity here has two basic ideas behind it. The first is that of, of wholeness, singleness of heart, or, or maybe we could say an undivided heart. Uh, because think, think of its opposite. Think of the definition of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is being... Um, one thing with one group of people and, and another thing with another group of people. You have a divided heart. And what Jesus is describing here is a heart that is always the same. It's not divided. You're not living a, a public life of outward purity so that everyone thinks better about you than you really are while living an inward life of defilement. Because it's not the show that he's after, it's the heart. 
But then the, there's a second aspect of this word purity here, and that is to be clean, no defilement. Um, in Galatians 5, where, G, where uh, Paul is talking about the fruit of the Spirit, he also contrasts it with the fruit of the flesh. And he says the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual morality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And see again, he's talking about the kingdom, Jesus' kingdom. And as the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us, he says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy because without holiness, no one will see God. No one will see the Lord. And again, Jesus here is talking about a new heart that doesn't fake holiness, that doesn't put on good deeds, but has an undivided heart that sees that God is my highest good. And it's living for his glory alone rather than trying to partner with Jesus to be my helper, to partner with Jesus to be my, my guide or my spiritual supplement. He's talking about a new heart that has no room for good intentions. There's no space for merely being content with having religious experiences. It isn't satisfied with mere theological knowledge. Frankly, it has no room for merely trying harder to be a better person because this new heart knows that light and darkness cannot be mixed. You can't be partially light and partially dark or you'll be neither. Now, I'm hoping by this point in time, some of you might be a bit nervous and thinking, all right, I recognize just how impure my heart really is. And if Jesus here is not talking about trying to be more holy, which I can't work on, but he's describing what the citizens of his kingdom are already like, and they're already pure in heart, and they long for a life of purity, I'm just not there right now. And I don't know if I can be. Let me explain to you how there are three aspects, three facets of how this purity um, plays itself out in our lives. One is dealing with justification, second dealing with sanctification, a third dealing with glorification. Or if you don't like using theological words, your past, your present, and your future. Might be easier, right? And, and you can see them mentioned really in the very same verse. In Hebrews 10, he says, for by one sacrifice, he is made perfect forever. Those who are being made holy. See, we have been made perfect, and yet we're still being made holy. And of course, one day we actually will be holy in reality. And so one aspect of this purity of heart that Jesus is talking about is that citizens of his kingdom have already been made holy. We are pure because of the purity of Jesus who took on the defilement of our sins and that he gave to us or legally credited to us the perfect righteousness that he earned. And so this aspect is really a call for you and me to learn how to live our daily lives in the light of how God sees us and not through the lens of how we see ourselves. And see, he tells us, you are holy if you are in Christ. <coughs> you are pure in God's eyes. You know, stop beating yourself up over all your failures. Stop trying to discipline better behavior that can only come as a result of a changed heart. Live each day in the victory of what it means to be an adopted child who is pure, who is holy, who is righteous, who is adored, who has been accepted. 
And of course, we have the ultimate promise here that one day we actually will be pure in reality, not just legally credited to our accounts in God's eyes, but we actually will be what he has declared us to be. And it's a day that we're promised there's going to be no more suffering and no more tears and no more death and no more struggles or limitations or brokenness. Everything is going to be healed. Everything sad will come untrue. But in between being declared righteous in his eyes and actually being righteous in reality one day, the scripture says that we are being made holy. So I want to ask the question, what does it mean for me to be someone who is pure even though I'm not? Am I supposed to work on my holiness today or do I just rest in the legal status that I have while I'm looking forward to the promise that one day I'm actually going to be that? Do I just sit back and wait? What do I do? Well, the Apostle John tells us in 1 John 3, he says, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. See, he says, we're going to be like him, so work on purifying yourself. Or as Paul puts it in Romans 8, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if... By the Spirit, you put to death the misdeeds of the body you will live. Or even more explicitly, what Paul says in Colossians 3, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. He says, put to death. Pretty active, right? So I want to ask, how do we put all this together? You know, for, for my today, right now, God has declared me to be righteous, and one day he's actually going to make me righteous. But today I'm supposed to work on being righteous. How does all that fit together? And see, because the Bible is so explicit that we should be working on our holiness and purity, it's really, frankly, easy to start thinking that I need to earn something, that I I maybe need to prove something, or, or possibly supplement something. And when you start heading down that track, it inevitably leads to discouragement and despair. And you start to beat yourself up because nobody can do it. At least not as well as everybody else appears to be able to do, right? And you have to start lying to yourself and lying to others about what's really going on inside of your heart. And so you'll start to settle for cleaning the outside of the cup while the inside is full of death and defilement. Listen, the the daily disciplines of grace, and what do I mean by that? Reading your Bible, praying, pursuing obedience, living in community. These disciplines can never be ends in themselves and they can never produce holiness, but they are the ways that we experience the holiness that's already ours and one day will be ours in reality, right? Because see, this is how we live out the new heart that we've been given. Jesus gives us a new heart that desires from the inside out to be pure and holy. And of course, the problem is those desires are tainted by a flesh that still remains in the old nature that's centered on me, right? And so I have a new self that longs to be pure and I've got an old self that longs to be me and king of my own little world. And so that's why it's such a struggle for us to work on a purity that's already ours. In fact, let me just walk you through a model how to do this, of how to use the disciplines of grace to be able to learn to flex the new muscles of this new heart 
that we've been given. And it's actually a model that we display every single Sunday as we worship together corporately. Right? We always begin with God calling uh, you to pursue him, right? And see, that, that's why our worship service always starts with a call to worship. It's not because it's some formal liturgy that we picked up somewhere. It's a biblical idea. God says, hey, I want you to be here. I'm calling you to be here. I know you're tired. I know you don't want to get up. I know you're lazy. I know you've got a thousand other things you could be doing, but I am calling you into my presence to worship. And so you don't just worship God when you feel like it. You don't just think about him when you've got some sort of need that pops up in your life. You actively pursue God because he calls you to, right? Every day, this is a call to be intentional, to respond to God's call to be in community with him. That's what I was made for, right? So I don't start the day saying, what do I feel like today? What am I in the mood for today? I, I wake each morning being called into God's presence. And when we do, God responds by revealing himself to you in scripture. And what he reveals to us when you read scripture is that he's far more than a helper when you're in trouble. He's far more than a guide for when you're feeling lost. But he's the glorious, the great I am, as we sang this morning. And we become overwhelmed with how far above me that God actually is. And so we respond to that with confession. Like the prophet Isaiah, we, we're in God's presence and we, we fall down and we say, woe is me, I'm unclean. See, we don't come to God making promises to do better next time. We don't come to God offering bargains of, I'll do this uh, and, I'll, and I'll be more obedient here if you'll give me that. Right? We don't come to God after we've managed to pull ourselves out of the pits of sin that we've fallen into so that we can feel more worthy of his forgiveness now. But like Joseph, we recognize, okay, God had me put in that pit for a reason. <laughs> and he's using that to reveal my sin to my heart and my need to my heart. See, all you need <clears throat> is need. And therefore, your only response to confession is not confession plus commitment. It's not confession plus promises. It's not commitment plus trying harder. It's just repent. See, all those other things place a deep burden of work upon your heart that you just can't do and it's exhausting to try but you see repentance puts you right back into the presence of god immediately and when we confess he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness right and so god responds by assuring us of his grace no matter what you've done that sin is now covered it is gone as far as the east is from the west god says i don't remember it anymore so stop living under the guilt and shame of it because God no longer sees you that way. And when you continue to see yourself that way, despite what he says, to live under the weight of it, to live under the guilt of it, to live under the shame of it, you're calling God a liar. That's what you're doing. You're saying, God, no, I'm just too bad for that. Your grace could not cover that sin. You're a liar. Listen, let the heights of God's glory sitting next to the depth of your need that's now covered by the blood of Jesus drive you to worship and praise. Because you see, I think this is the ultimate goal of all these disciplines. Having reminded you of everything that you have in Christ, it explodes your heart into worship. See, worship is the thing that you're constantly thinking about already, naturally. It's what you spend your time contemplating. I mean, we're all worshiping constantly. 
It, it's, it's the visions of the good life that occupy your imagination. When you sit around and think, man, I just had that. If I could just get rid of that. If I could just pull these scenarios together and you think about it and you meditate on it and it just captivates the heart. And you can spend hours lost in your mind because you're worshiping all of these things that you think are gonna make your life great. And the worship of God is what displaces all of these small visions. It replaces it with the wonder of a God who could love me like that. Because man, it'd be great to get a new truck, but that thing's gonna get old and it's gonna fall apart and I'm gonna have to spend money on it. But this kind of love is never gonna grow old. It'll never wear out. He'll never give up on me. He'll never not crank and start in the morning. He's always, always there. Listen, purity of heart means that having been declared righteous with a promise that one day I'm actually going to be righteous, my heart now has a new passion for experiencing that purity so I can enjoy it because that's what I was made for. That's what God designed me to be. And you've got to take your heart back to this same process over and over and over again each day, actually several times throughout your day until the worship of God just explodes into your heart because what you worship will be what you think about, will be what you do, will be where your heart is. Because listen, in the end, worship is a thing that leads to a longing for purity. Worship is what creates a longing for community with God, where I can enjoy a standing with God that says, I am okay, I'm loved, it's, it's all right. See, I'm filled with honest confession. It doesn't drive me to despair, because it's not about my own, my own purity, it's about the purity of Jesus that's been given to me that's now being worked in me. And therefore, pursuing it every day isn't about earning something. It's not about trying to prove something, but it's about being able to enjoy what's already been given to me and the promise of what's yet to come. And see, because we still live in a body with corrupt hearts, that our new hearts don't naturally think this way. I, I don't know about yours, but mine doesn't. I don't naturally wake up every morning thinking, oh God, you're so great and you're so wonderful and you're all that I need. I don't naturally think that way. It, it, it's hard to remember all that I've been given in Christ. It's hard even to believe it when I do remember it. So that new heart has to be exercised. See, that's what these spiritual disciplines are for. They're not spiritual check boxes to go through each day, but it's God's means of grace to you. His means of reminding you who he is and what he's done and who you now are as a result. And you see, just like with any physical exercise, these spiritual disciplines are training for your heart. And this is why it's so important for us to see here that Jesus is not telling us to be poor in spirit. He's not telling us to be merciful or meek, but he's telling us that if we see our true need and we see how Jesus has met that need, then it changes us into the kind of people who want to be pure and holy. And we want to experience it more and more each day. We've already been given it. One day it's coming, but I want to enjoy it now. I hate how ugly and dark and broken I feel when I chase after sin. And see, having been declared righteous with a promise that one day we're actually going to be righteous, it gives me a new heart that longs for that, to pursue that purity. Not to earn anything, not to prove something, but to enjoy what I've got. And listen, when you obey more, you can enjoy it more. And when you obey, obey less, you're not going to enjoy it nearly as much. But it's no less true of me either way. And it's still coming no matter how great or dim my enjoyment of it might be. 
Now, I need to end. Boy, I need to end. Uh, but we still have to deal with this final statement. It says, for they will see God. Right? We can't, we can't leave that tail end off. And just like with purity, there's a present and a future uh, reality to this promise here. Because, see, for, for now, in, in this uh, in-between broken world where we're struggling with a new nature and an old nature, we can still see God in various ways. We can see him, for example, in nature, right? We can be awed by his beauty, by his creativity in the things that we see. And so that makes us proactive to want to preserve its beauty and integrity. But, but I think we also see God at work in history. We see God at work in our own personal histories, and so, let me make this practical. When we see a pandemic, most of us have seen one, right? Or when we see the great social upheavals of our society, seen a few of those. When we see social unrest or the ups and downs of political elections, we don't panic. We don't get depressed. You know, I am absolutely puzzled and troubled by all the talk that I hear in Christian circles about how dark and difficult and painful these last several years have been, that I'm barely hanging on, I'm trying to survive. And I think, what? Can't you see that God is the one who is at work in the midst of everything that's going on here? Do you think for one second that God isn't in control and that he's using and directing all of this for his own purposes. There's nothing to panic about. But you see, if you look at your own life through the lens of your own personal preferences, through the lens of your own goals, through your own dreams, then you're gonna be on the edge whenever you see the world falling apart. And you're gonna be on the edge of panic. And you're gonna blame all of your anxiety on your circumstances, or you're gonna feel a need to patch up the mess that you've made of your life. But if you can see God right now even working actively in the midst of what is chaos, seemingly, you can relax when the world's falling apart. Because listen, listen to his promises. He says, guys, I will set a banquet table for you to chill and enjoy a great meal, even in the presence of your enemies. With arrows slinging all around you and people crying out in battle, you're just sitting there eating, having a great old meal. That's the promise. Even when everything is falling apart, do you, you see that? Can you see God at work right now, today? Even in your own stupid messes that you've created out of your own foolishness, can you see God at work? But you see, we also sense his presence with us, especially in worship. And I really wanna press you on this. Have you ever noticed why at the end of a worship service, you seem to have a clarity to your problems and to your life that you didn't have when you walked in? You ever notice that? That you have a peace and a rest and a calmness of heart that you didn't have when you walked in. I mean, when you walked in, you were fighting with your spouse, right? You were all uptight and stressed out about something. You know, we're, you know, we're moving and getting a new job and kids and, you know, stress everywhere. But now you feel a sense of peace. Listen, it's not the worship service. We're not that good. But it's the worship that has led you to the presence of God. And it's his presence that brings that clarity and that peace. And so we see God in worship. But then lastly, there's also a future aspect to God's presence. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, for now we only see a reflection as in a mirror. And we see dimly, but then we're gonna see face to face. And to see, despite all of our struggles, despite all of our own stupid sinfulness, despite our inabilities to change and get it right this time, we will still see him face to face. And see, everything in this life is merely preparation for that day, 
for being in the presence of our daddy. Well, there's gonna be no more sin and no more suffering and no more tears and no more death and no more self-inflicted wounds. And see, what's true of you today legally will be true of you in reality that day. So his call here is to pursue with passion today the experience and the enjoyment of all that has been given to you and all that you're becoming and all that's going to be yours one day. Blessed are the pure in heart, those who have been made pure, those who are being made pure, and those who one day will be pure, for they will see God. They will see him working in the midst of everything and so they don't panic and freak out or get depressed. One day you're gonna see him face to face, finally freed from all the sin that's held you in its grips your whole life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we really struggle with this. Um, and it, it's just confusing to us. We, we, we sense a need in us that says we're not what we ought to be. And, and I need to fix things. I need to change things. I need to be better. And of course, all that's true, but we're not capable of it. And so we desperately need to see Jesus. And we need to be reminded that what we could not do, you have done for us. And I pray, Lord, that you would take us over and over and over again back to that same process each day to be confronted with the fact that you're calling us into community with you and that when we see you, it humbles us at how broken and messy we are. And yet we're reminded that Jesus has paid everything in full. And so we can now enjoy the process of pursuing what we have been declared to be and what we're going to be. And I pray, Lord, that you would teach us how to enjoy that process, that you would free us from guilt and shame, that you would free us from all the games of trying to pretend to be something that we're not, and that we would be able to rest in the enjoyment of who you have made us to be. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.